sola scriptura. We're going to talk about the Reformation idea of scripture alone. So yesterday was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, October 31, 1517. Luther takes his 95 theses that we mentioned earlier. He nails them to the the church door. This is a picture of the church. You can go visit it. Uh, That's the place where he would have nailed it up and nails it up. Uh, for sort of theological disputation in his mind with the the clerics and the priests and the the clergy. As I mentioned earlier, it gets translated into the vernacular. It gets thrown on the printing press, and uh, away we go. Historians look back, and they just sort of say, that's the moment, that's the event that sparked the Protestant Reformation. And as historians look back on the Reformation, and they try to summarize what was going on what were they reforming? What were they protesting? They've sort of looked back and used this idea of the five solas to summarize uh, the teaching and the doctrine of Luther and Calvin and some of the other reformers. And so these are not necessarily things like Luther never sat down and said, here's the five solas. Calvin didn't sort of systemize these things in that way. This is just historians looking back and saying, these are sort of the, the broad brushstrokes that they were trying to paint with, the main things that they were trying to emphasize. And so these are the five that we're going to talk about. Uh, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and the glory of God alone. And the Reformers felt like Rome had drifted away from these biblical realities, these biblical truths, and wanted to sort of call the church back. And initially had the idea of staying within the church and calling the church to repentance and seeing doctrinal change take place within the church. And then at some point they realize that's not going to happen and there just needs to be a clean break from what has become corrupted here. So each of these ideas are important if you want to understand the Reformation. This first one that we're going to talk about is sometimes called by theologians, and I think this is on your notes, uh, the formal principle of the Reformation. And all they're trying to say with that, when they say this is the formal principle, is like, this is the ground of all of it. This is the reason all the other things that happened in the Reformation happened, is because they were coming back to this idea of sola scriptura. And historically, you can see how it happened. You understand that pretty early on, Latin became the language of the church, And even later, through hundreds and hundreds of years, through what we would call the medieval period, even when many people didn't speak Latin, many common folks didn't speak Latin, the church continued to use Latin. And the translation of the Bible that was available was in Latin. And if you couldn't read Latin, then you couldn't read the Bible. And most people didn't have access to one anyways. But Latin was sort of a a barrier for folks. Well, in 1516... A man named Erasmus took all of the ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. You you understand the New Testament was not written in Latin. It was written in Greek and translated into Latin. Well, Erasmus, in 1516, he takes all of the available Greek manuscripts that he could get his hands on. And he didn't exactly do this, but you can just imagine him sitting down at a desk and spreading them all out and saying piecing them together, fragments and a bit here, maybe a whole book here. And he pieced it together and he came out with what nobody had read for hundreds and hundreds of years. What, it was a Greek copy of the New Testament. It was the New Testament in the original language that it was written in. 
And there was things when people like Martin Luther opened up that, that Greek manuscript and they started reading it in the original language, there was things they read there that they realized We've been sold a bill of goods all these years, and I'll just give you one example of why this was so important. In the Latin Vulgate, in this Latin translation of the Bible that they'd been using for hundreds and hundreds of years, when the New Testament used the word metanoia, repentance, the Latin translated that as do penance. So when you read it in the Latin, if you didn't know what was behind it, if you didn't know what the Greek said, and you just read this translation that said, do penance, then the Catholic Church came alongside and said, yeah, you you need to do penance. You need to say the Hail Marys and the Our Fathers and light the candles and pay the money and do the stuff. Do this Catholic idea of penance if you're sorry for your sins. Well, then Luther, 1516, Erasmus comes out with this Greek New Testament, and he cracks the thing open, and he turns to all these passages that he thought said, do penance, and he said, but that's not what the Greek word means. It doesn't have anything to do with penance. It has to do with a change of mind and a change of your heart that leads to a change in your life. And that's just one example when they went back to the original language of something that to us seems so clear. And so obvious, but for hundreds of years, there'd been confusion about it. So when we talk about sola scriptura, we're talking about the formal principle of the Reformation. This is what really got it rolling. Now, all that history and theology, you may say, man, I I feel like I'm underwater already. Let's just dial it back to like fifth grade, fourth grade, first grade, kindergarten Sunday school, okay? Think about some of the songs that you sang growing up in church as a child. How about the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me, I Stand, ah, see, you know all about it. You know songs about this. You guys are smart. I Stand Alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. That doesn't mean you stand alone all by yourself. That means I take my stand on the Scriptures alone. Think about Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That may seem like just simplistic, childish ideas, but when we teach our kids songs like those, you're teaching them this idea of sola scriptura. We take our stand on scripture alone. Where scripture speaks, we speak. Where scripture is silent, we're silent. We believe in the gospel, we believe in Jesus, not because some person told us, but because the Bible tells us. The Bible is our authority. So, one quick quote, just to start us off, from a guy named B.B. Warfield. He was a professor at Princeton, and this may surprise you, but back in the day, Princeton had some really great first-class theologians. That's been a long time ago, Uh, but in the late 1800s, early 1900s, B.B. was at Princeton Uh, He's known as the last great Princeton theologian, and this is what he said. Sola Scriptura is the cornerstone of universal Protestantism. On it, Protestantism stands or else it falls. So this is a guy who is remembered as a phenomenal, world-class theologian. And he looks at all the doctrines and all of the ologies and all the, you know, studies and all this stuff. And he says, the one thing you got to get right, the one thing you can't afford to miss 
is this idea of sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is our authority. And if you miss that, everything else crumbles. Once you sell this down the river, you've sold the farm. You're done. And you've seen that play out in history. You've seen it at places, ironically, like Princeton, who have given up this idea of sola scriptura, and they've drifted a million miles from where a guy like B.B. Warfield ever thought they would end up. And he would say, I, I warned you guys about this. This is the cornerstone of Protestantism. So what did Rome believe before the Reformation? Let me just sort of take us back so we know what we're protesting against. Rome believed the Bible was inspired and inerrant. Okay? They believed it was God's word, and they believed it was perfect. They also believed that the authority of Scripture was rooted in the authority of the church. And they believed the decrees of councils and popes held authority equal to Scripture. So that first sentence we probably don't have any quibble with, right? Scripture is inspired by God. It's inerrant in its content. It's perfect. We all agree on that. But then Rome comes along and they say this. The authority of Scripture was rooted in the authority of the church. So I'm a visual guy, and uh, I was thinking about this after I put my slides up, so I don't have a slide to show you, but I'll describe it, and you can draw what I drew out in the margin. Draw a little picture of a church building, real simple, square, triangle, cross on the top, church. Then draw an arrow, and then draw a little picture of a Bible. Okay, Rome says the church creates the Bible. The church has the authority, and through their authority, the church says, here's the Bible. Here's God's word. The authority isn't necessarily with the Bible because it's secondary. The authority is with the church. And the reformers flip that around. So your second little picture, your second diagram is a picture of a Bible with an arrow and then a church. And the reformers said, whoa, 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 you got it backwards. The Bible creates the church. The word of God is the authority. That leads to the people of God, to the church, not the other way around. And we'll read some quotes here in a minute that show you, you got to get this straight. They also said the decrees of council and popes, uh, councils and popes held authority equal to Scripture. So let me tell you about a guy named Sylvester Prireus. He was a Dominican theologian. Leo X was the pope when Martin Luther was talking about all of these things. And Leo X appointed this guy named Sylvester to give a response to Luther. So at some point, the Pope realized this is not just a drunk German who's going to sober up. This is something we're going to have to deal with. So he sends Sylvester to deal with it. And this is something that Sylvester writes uh, in a, a work called Dialogue Concerning the Power of the Pope. He says, He who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and the Pontiff of Rome as an infallible rule of faith, from which, from the Church of Rome and the Pope, from which the Holy Scriptures draw their strength and authority as a heretic. So what he's saying is, the real authority is the church and the Pope. And they give some of their authority to the Bible. The Bible has authority, but it comes from the church and the Pope. The authority sort of filters down. And he says, if you deny that, if you deny that the Pope is the supreme authority in the church, you're a heretic. That's him responding to Martin Luther. There was a guy named Cardinal Cahiton or Cardinal Cajetan. 
Kajetan. I've heard it pronounced a couple of different ways. He was a leading spokesman for the church against Luther. And he said, the church must interpret the scripture for anyone to understand it. And this is just a a painting of the cardinal and Luther. They had some debates face-to-face in a room on a couple of occasions. And he just said, look, you cannot just go read the Bible for yourself. The church has to tell you what it means. Why would he say that? Well, it's because he agrees with Sylvester. The authority lies in the church. The Bible doesn't have any authority on its own, but the church sort of tells you what it means. There's something called the Council of Trent in the 1500s. This was a a council called to respond to Luther and respond to all of these reformers. This is a painting of what it might have looked like. And in the fourth session, the church declared at the Council of Trent, this is the first time they officially said this and put it on paper. They said that the truths of God are found in Scripture and tradition. Equal. The tradition of the church, whatever we've said, and the Bible, that's where you find truth. And Luther and the gang are saying, no, 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 it's in Scripture alone. We'll read some of their quotes in a minute. And the church pushes back and they say, no, 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 no. You find truth in the Scripture and in the tradition of the church. And that's still church law, church rule today. They've never rescinded that. They've never taken that back. The teaching of the Catholic Church is truth and authority and reality about God is found in the Bible and in what we tell you about the Bible. And both of those things sit side by side. Vatican I was convened in 1870. And this is where the church officially made the idea of papal infallibility dogma, church dogma at Vatican I. And this is where the church says, when the pope speaks ex cathedra, when he speaks as the vicar of Christ, he speaks infallibly. He cannot make a mistake in what he says. It doesn't mean that everything that comes out of his mouth is infallible, but it means when he speaks for the church, whatever he says goes. He has the authority. So contrast that with the Reformation teaching, okay? The Reformation guys, Luther and the, and the gang, they said the Bible alone is the final infallible authority for doctrine and practice. It is a determining norm over all human opinions, all creeds, all traditions. Because Scripture is God's Word, it is a sufficient, and here's this idea again, a final authority for the church. Bible is the final authority. It's not the only authority. Luther believed that uh, we should write catechisms and statement of, statements of faith and explain what the Bible meant. He believed that we should teach and the church should have a, a set of tradition. He just wanted to put the Bible over church and over tradition as the final norm. The Bible gets the final say. And if you run into something where a, a creed or a confession or a catechism or the tradition of the church says one thing and the Bible says the other thing, Luther and the Reformers are saying the Bible's got to win. It has to have the final say and the last say that we judge all these other things by. And they stressed this, this idea that the Bible was sufficient. So let me give you a few quotes from Luther. Some of these I didn't have room to put on your, uh, on your notes, but I'll put them up on the screen. Look what he says here. A simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without scripture. 
As for the Pope's decretal on indulgences, I say that neither the church nor the Pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. For the sake of Scripture, we should reject Pope and councils. Can you just try to, I know it's hard for us to put ourselves in his situation, but can you imagine how angry the church was when a guy like Luther, this drunk Lutheran, or this drunk monk, drunk German, said, a layman with the Bible has more authority than the Pope? Like they thought, you have lost your mind. You have completely fallen off your rocker. Like that was a complete threat to everything that they had built. And Luther says, look, I I don't care who you are. You can be a farmer. You can be a peasant. But if you're standing with Scripture, you have the authority. Not a pope, not a council, not the church, not the tradition, but the Scripture. This was a a quote where Luther was arguing with Cardinal Cahiton, and he said this. The truth of Scripture comes first. After that is accepted, one may determine whether the words of men can be accepted as true. So we're going to start with the Bible. And then I'll listen to you, and if you line up with the Bible, great. If you don't line up with the Bible, we're done with you. That's the way it is. And we just read the quote from the cardinal a minute ago. You remember what he said, right? It's the authority of the church. And if you deny the authority of the pope, you're a heretic. And Luther fires back, well, I guess I'm a heretic. Because I'm going to go with the authority of the Bible, and that's going to judge everything else. You've heard the story where Luther was called to the Diet of Worms. And he's there with uh, church leaders, and he's there with princes, German princes, and they're having this debate. And uh, Luther thinks he's going to this event to sort of have a dialogue. And he shows up, and they sort of trap him, and they put all his books on a table, and they say, do you stand by these, yes or no? And you may have heard the story, Luther, he sort of starts to talk, and they say, no, 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 yes or no? Is this your stuff, and do you stand by it? And Luther says, can I have 24 hours to think about it? And some people look at that and say, like, he was wavering. I think it's more likely that he really thought he was going to have a debate, and they sort of blindsided him, and he says, okay, so we're not going to debate. I need to think about what I'm going to say here. So he takes a night, and he prays about it, and he thinks about it, and he comes back the next day, and this is what he says. Unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have erred and contradicted themselves. I'm bound by the Scripture I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. To go against conscience would be neither right nor safe. God help me, here I stand. I can do no other i got to stand with what I see in the Scripture. And I look at your councils and your popes, and they talk past each other, and they contradict each other, and they don't line up with the Bible. And he said, at the end of the day, I'm standing with the Scriptures. This is one of my favorite Luther quotes. This is towards the end of his life, when he was reflecting and looking back on all that had been accomplished and done. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. He said, look, all all we had to do was just help people understand the Bible. It's not rocket science. 
This is not something you have to go to seminary to understand. This is not something you have to be a, a cleric or a, a clergyman to understand. All you got to do is just put the Bible before people. I didn't do anything. Luther didn't do anything great. I just showed people the Bible and the Word did the work. What does the Bible say? We'll run through a couple of ideas here quickly and we're going to look some scriptures up. Number one, the Bible claims to be inspired by God. So when we talk about inspiration, we're saying something to the effect that when Paul wrote the letter to the church in Rome, Paul wrote the things that were on his heart and on his mind, but the Spirit of God worked in Paul and through Paul in such a way that the words he wrote, while they were Paul's words, they were also God's words. They're breathed out by God, and that's what you see in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can flip to 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Scripture is God's breath. It's God speaking. It's God breathing out these words. If you're in 2 Timothy, flip a few pages to the right and look at 2 Peter chapter 1. See the same idea worded a little bit differently. Second Peter 1.21, Peter says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And uh, if you jump down over later in, in 2 Peter 3, we won't look at it just for the sake of time, but you can look at 2 Peter 3, 16 to 17. Peter says, Paul's letters are Scripture. So when we read Paul's words to Timothy, and he says all Scripture is breathed out by God, we're thinking, okay, he's talking about the Old Testament. But then you jump over to Peter, and Peter says, look, nobody, nobody writes Scripture or words of prophecy on their own. They're carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit inspires them to write God's words. And Peter talks later in his letter about Paul's letters. Paul's writings are Scripture. They fall into this category of Scripture, just like the other Old Testament books. So the Bible claims to be inspired by God. Now, really, really that's all you need, right? Like if you just stop there and you say the Bible is God's word, everything else that we're about to say ought to be understood. But we're going to go ahead and say it just to make it really clear. Okay, The Bible claims to be inerrant in content, meaning true. It doesn't make mistakes. And that makes sense. If God breathed the words out, if God carried these men along as they wrote the scriptures... If these words are not just their words, but they're God's words, then we would assume if they're God's words, they're true words. And that's what the Bible claims for itself. Look at John 17, 17. This is Jesus in his high priestly prayer. And one of the things he prays, or one of the things he says is, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's talking to the Father. The Father's word is truth. 
So if you back it up and say, well, the Bible is God's word. It's inspired by God. You add two and two together, and you say, well, the Bible's true. This is God's word. It's true. Jesus said it. So you can disagree with Jesus, but he's claiming that God's word is true. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. We won't get into the whole argument of Hebrews 6. I just want you to see verse 18 that says, By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And just sort of gives you this statement in there that seems like an obvious idea, but he's just reminding you, God doesn't lie. God doesn't tell lies. He doesn't say things that are not true. So if the Bible is inspired... The Bible is his word. His word is true. You can rest in that. The Bible claims to be our supreme authority. Authority gets at the idea of power. Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Scripture is how God brings conviction into our lives, how he he brings life into our dead spiritual lives. We give an account to God, and we do this through his word. So it's our authority. The last idea, and this is a big one, the Bible claims to be Sufficient. Sufficient. We'll read these quickly. First Corinthians four six. Paul says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And again, we're not getting into the whole argument of of the chapter here, but Paul says, look, we don't need to go beyond what's written. You don't need to go beyond the Scriptures. That's the authority, and it's sufficient, and you don't need anything beyond that. Look at Galatians chapter 1. If you just flip a few pages to the right. Galatians 1, 8. Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You don't need another revelation. You don't need anything else. You have the truth of the gospel. You have the scriptures, and it's sufficient. Look at Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So all this other stuff that you may want to add on to your Christianity, tradition, or elemental spirits, or philosophy, or empty deceit, none of that, you don't need any of that stuff. The scripture is sufficient, so we don't need to go beyond that. So that's what the Bible claims for itself. We're going to end with just a few thoughts about modern challenges. And uh, I'll put them up on the screen. And I just want you to think about this doctrine today and where we're going to face challenges 
to the idea of sola scriptura. So let's start with scripture plus. This would be any religious group who says, we believe the Bible, and they pick something else up and they say, we also believe in this, and they they hold the two side by side. So one challenge today would be the Roman Catholic Church. The decrees and the councils that we mentioned earlier and some of the things they said about church tradition and authority, they would say, look, we're Catholics. Of course we believe the Bible. We're Christians. We love Jesus. And they hold the Bible up. And then they say, and tradition, councils, the Pope speaking as a vicar of Christ, all these other things we hold with equal or really even higher authority. So it's Scripture plus. You can think about um, if you have Mormon neighbors or friends or co-workers. Our Mormon friends would say, we believe in the Bible. We give free Bibles away on TV. You want one? And we also believe in the Book of Mormon. Equal. And we believe in a book called the Doctrines and Covenants. Equal. And we believe in something called the Pearl of Great Price. Equal. And they just sort of add to it. Our Jehovah's Witness friends and neighbors would say the same thing. They would say, we believe in the Bible. We carry them around and we can quote them to you and talk about them. But we also believe in the teachings of the Watchtower Society. So our little magazines and our little pamphlets, we hold those as equal authority. To have a guy in my Sunday school class who's been sharing the gospel with some Jehovah's Witness guys and they've been coming over to his house and they're talking and he said, we dig into the Bible and we start to talk about something and I put something in front of them that makes them uncomfortable and he said, they just immediately write to the books. Well, let me see what the Watchtower says. Well, let me see what the, I got a reference here. Let me look it up. Let me see. And it's, you know, something explaining the Bible and they hold it completely as an equal authority. So scripture plus is a challenge. Limited inerrancy. I think you'll find this in a lot of churches in the United States. These are people, um, they're very inconsistent in their theology here, but this is sort of what they say. They say, we believe that this is God's word. This is God's word. We believe it's true. We just don't believe all of it's true. Like, this is an old book. You know how old this book is? You, do you know what, you know, ancient cultures did and how they acted and some of the crazy things they thought. I mean, this is the 21st century. We can't believe everything in here. So on the one hand, they look at you without even blushing. And they say, we believe that this is God's word. And I promise you, there's people who go to church in Odessa, Texas, and their pastor, their minister, whoever stands up and they say, this is God's word. And they say, well, my pastor believes in the Bible's God's word. And if you really pin them in a corner and start to talk to them, they say, well, we don't believe it's It's not all God's word. It's not all true. And you know as well as I do, the things that get shaved off the edges are the controversial things. The things that are sort of uncomfortable for us to stand for, depending on our cultural context or setting. So limited inerrancy. Um, One of the things we tell people in our new member class, I know a lot of you haven't been to it, some of you have, but we just say, look, the very first doctrinal thing we talk about is Scripture. We believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture, and when we say that, we really mean it. We are not ever going to apologize for something the Bible says. We want to understand it rightly. 
We want to apply it correctly. We want to be humble in our interpretations and our understandings, not ever putting our tradition above the Bible, but we're not going to back down from what the Bible says. We really mean that. So limited inerrancy is a problem. It's a problem in churches. Scientism would just be people who, at the end of the day, their authority is whatever they term science. And I'll just give you one quick warning on that. When you hear people talk about science today, just understand that many times, not all of the time, many times what that means is a bunch of people got together in a room and we all agree. So it's science. We're smart people, we have letters after our name, and we agree on something, so now that's the scientific consensus. And it may or may not be based on any sort of observable fact or phenomenon. It's just smart people got together in a room and said, this is the way it is, so now it's science. And for some people, that's their authority, not Scripture. Okay, now let's get personal, okay? Celebrity teachers. This is a big problem. This is a really really, really big problem. And the internet has just taken a bad problem and poured gasoline on it. Okay? This has been a problem for a long time. You can dial the calendar back all the way to a guy like Charles Spurgeon in London. Spurgeon used to preach sermons. People would write them down. He'd have, uh, you know, copyists or scribes or whatever you want to call them, write them down. Because he just preached extemporaneous. He didn't use a manuscript. So he would preach and they'd write it down. And they'd print them instantly. sell them on the streets of London. They'd telegraph them across uh, the ocean to the United States. They'd sell them in the big cities in the United States, and people just thought, oh, this guy, this whatever he says is the greatest. And there was a little bit of Spurgeon worship going on. And so it's been a problem for a long time, but it's a really big problem when you and I can go get on the Internet and we can find somebody who, you know, is speaking in a big venue or has sold a lot of books or has a really flashy presentation or whatever, and we can find somebody that agrees with us. If you want to get online and find somebody who agrees with you, you can find somebody, and then you can say, well, look, that person said it. David Jeremiah said it. John MacArthur said it. Beth Moore said it. You picked the teacher. Matt Chandler said it. John Piper said it. And you can just easily take somebody and put them up on a pedestal. And while we as Protestants sit here and laugh at the Catholics, right? Oh, you listen to popes. You just believe whatever the pope says. You just believe whatever the council says. You dummies, you don't know anything. Millions of Protestants sit here over on the other side and say, yeah, but I I heard a sermon by so-and-so on the Internet. There's no biblical basis for it necessarily. It's just that some celebrity teacher said it and they buy it. Following your heart. Just don't do it. I mean, that's just the, the long and the short of it. The world tells you to do it. Just what do you, what do you feel like? And, you know, how do you feel about it? And uh, there have been a lot of evangelical Protestant Leaders, teachers, bloggers, uh, pastors who have been exposed lately on the issue of homosexuality and homosexual marriage. And if you just listen to the ones, the big profile ones that have come out and changed their stance, okay? 
Take somebody like Jen Hatmaker and her husband, who's a pastor in the Austin area. People love her. Celebrity blogger. Jen Hatmaker, I share articles on Facebook. She's the best. Whatever she says, I love her. She comes out a while back and she says, and her husband, we changed our mind on homosexual marriage. And it had nothing to do with like we dug into the book of Romans and found a verse we had never read before. It's not like we were convinced from the arguments of Scripture. Their, their reasoning was, we know some people who are living this sort of lifestyle, and we just, they're really nice. They're really nice people. And we just feel like we can't say what we were saying anymore. That's following your heart. That has nothing to do with the authority of Scripture. That's just totally following your heart and allowing that to become the supreme authority. And I'm telling you, you just listen to them. Um, the most recent one was Eugene Peterson, the guy who translated, quote-unquote, translated the message. And he gave an interview, and uh, the guy asked him in the interview, uh, if you were still a pastor, would you marry a homosexual couple in your church? He said, yep. And they said, why would you do, why, why would you do? And he said, well, just, you know, over the years I live up in the, the northwest area, and there's a lot of that, and there's some nice folks, and I, I don't know, I just... He didn't say, like, oh, I was studying the scriptures and I, I realized I was interpreting it wrong. It was just all, yeah, I, I just, you know, I just feel like that's probably what I ought to do. Now, to his credit or detriment or whatever you want to say, he came out the very next day and said, no, that's not what I meant. And they said, would you like to clarify? And he said, no. So, <laughs> Whatever. Don't follow your heart. Uh, okay, somebody said book sales. Yeah. Um, sufficiency. Last, last threat. This is to me the biggest one for, for you and I. Okay? All the things here are threats. This is the biggest one for us. And the issue is for us as followers of Jesus... And for us as a church, do we really believe that Scripture is sufficient for what we need to do as Christians and what we need to do as a church family? So I'll just mention a few little sub-thoughts here and, and uh, we'll wrap up with this idea. Do we believe that Scripture is sufficient for the task of evangelism? Yes or no? I mean, I hope we do. I hope we know what the right answer is. But I'm afraid that since uh, the Billy Graham era, many evangelical Protestants believe that the way you do evangelism is you have a big event. You draw a bunch of people and attract them with something. And then somebody gives a gospel presentation. And, but you've got to do it in the context of an event. Do we, do we think we need the event or do we just think we need the Bible? For evangelism, because what we need is the Bible. An event's not going to save anybody. A rally, uh, you know, a power lifter crushing a phone book in half or breaking bricks on his head. I mean, we'll go watch it, but ain't nobody going to get saved because of that. Do we believe Scripture is sufficient um, for sanctification? Do you believe, do I believe, do we believe that Scripture is sufficient to help us grow in holiness? Or 
do we fall into the group of the people that say, you know, the Bible is good. I like the Bible. But what really helps me grow is my Jesus Calling book. That's where I really, really feel close to God. I, I like the Bible, but this is what really does it. I need someone else to sort of step in and help with that. I think the Bible's enough um, with guidance for your life, making decisions. Do you believe Scripture is sufficient for that? I hope you do. I mean, obviously, at this point, the answer is yes, it's sufficient. But do we really believe that? I read a, uh, a joke. I bet you've heard this. I kind of like it. There was a, a guy that called a Christian counseling office, and nobody answered the phone, so he got the, he got the auto message. And it said, if you have obsessive compulsive disorder, press one repeatedly. <laughs> and if you struggle with codependency, ask a friend to push number two. And if you have mer- multiple personalities, press three, four, and five. And if you're paranoid, delusional, don't worry about pressing anything. We're already tracing the call. And if you're an evangelical, just wait on the line. And listen for a still, small voice that will tell you which button to push. That's like evangelical decision-making 101. Um, Our staff is reading a book right now. It's a pretty good book. But we just read a chapter in it that I just wanted to rip out and start a fire with. Because the guy says in there, like, "If if you need guidance from the Lord, you just need to get really still and really quiet and just wait for God to tell you something. I'm like, well... No, you don't. You need to read the Bible. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but the Bible doesn't really tell me where to move or which house to buy or where to go to school or who to marry or all of these other things. But here's what the Bible tells you. God's will for your life, Paul says to the Thessalonians, is that you be holy. Be holy. So if anything that you're thinking about doing involves unholiness, we'll just scratch it off the list. It's not God's will for your life. The Bible, in the Ten Commandments, we read God's will for us, right? Don't worship idols. Don't worship other gods. Uh, Take a day out of seven to worship the Lord. Honor your father and your mother. Don't murder anybody. That's God's will for you. Anything in your life that falls on the other side of that, scratch it off. And then the Bible, this is a great thing. The Bible gives you a whole lot of freedom to just make a decision and to trust that God is sovereign, that he's not going to be surprised by anything that happens. And as long as you're not breaking one of his clear commands and you are pursuing holiness and you are engaged in your church and making disciples, do whatever you want and don't freak out about it. But whatever you do, don't just get real still and quiet and wait for God to beam a message down. Scripture is sufficient. I got a bunch on my list, but we're running out of time. One more. What about just for preaching in church? Um, Do you need crazy lights and fog machines and laser beams to preach the word? Do you need pipe organs and choir robes to preach the word? Okay, 
I mean, we can, we can go back and forth on this deal. Um, do you need a sermon series based on the blockbuster movies of the summer? I mean, we, we got churches in town that do that. They take the summer and they, they call it going to the movies. And they say, okay, so first Sunday in June, we're going to talk about Finding Nemo. And we're going to tell you how Finding Nemo helps you, I guess. I don't know. Finding Dory. And uh, then we're going to take the next Sunday and we're going to talk about uh, Lego Movie. Because, you know, Lego Movie is chock full of biblical truth. So we're going to talk about the Lego Movie and we're going to show you clips and we're going to make it fun and we're going to pop popcorn on Sunday morning and pass it out like you're going to a movie theater. It's going to be a great... You don't need to do all that stuff. There's a guy in Dallas right now. His current sermon series is called Candyland. Decorated their stage like the board game Candyland. Life-size game pieces and he's trying to connect candy to the story of the conquest and you just look at this and you think, you don't need it. You don't need any of that stuff. You know, in the Reformation, one of the things that the Reformers did, is they went into these Catholic churches, and uh, I've visited some places in South America and gone to look at some cathedrals. I love to go visit them. They're amazing to visit. And the Reformers walked into those amazing churches and gutted them. All the statues, all the shrines, all the candles, all the pictures on the wall, everything, they just yanked them all down. And uh, there was a guy named Johann Eck who lived during the Reformation, and he was a Catholic. And Eck wrote a letter to the Pope, and he was describing the state of the churches where the Reformers were gaining momentum. And he basically said, they don't meet in churches anymore, they meet in stables. They've taken our beautiful churches and they've just turned them into barns. And in his mind, that was the worst. Like, what are you doing? You're ruining it. And the reformers wore that with a badge of honor and said, you're exactly right. We don't need all this stuff. All we need is the word. And we're just going to preach it and make it clear and make it plain to people. And we believe that's enough. We believe that it's sufficient. We don't need a show. We don't need a magical mass. We don't need stuff all over the walls to hold your attention. We just need the Word of God made plain to people, and they believed in the the sufficiency of Scripture. So, look, you can look in history, and you can look at every church and seminary and denomination that goes astray theologically. It all starts with this idea of sola scriptura. And the ones who give it up, the ones who try to have Scripture and, or the ones who try to have inerrancy but a limited inerrancy, they all fall by the wayside. And uh, you see it in history. There's a guy named Steve Lawson, uh, <clears throat> who's a great preacher. And I like what he says about this issue of uh, Sola Scriptura. He talks about uh, how important it is. He says, we're not just dogmatic about it, we're bulldogmatic about it. Like, this is the one you've got to take your stand on. And if you miss this one, Everything else is a waste. So that's sola scriptura. Uh, 